0: If you would turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, this morning it's a word to the compromising church, a word to the compromising church. You know, um, compromise, just the word compromise usually sounds like a pretty good word, right? Hey, let's make a compromise. Usually it's two people that are against each other, they kind of make a a compromise and like everyone's like, hey, that's great because you're compromising. You know, you've come to a middle ground, you've come to a place where you're kind of compromising on things and, and everything is okay. But when it comes to worship of God, um, compromise is, is not a good thing. And, and I want to explain it this way. When Jesus addresses the church here um, in Pergamos, and depending on your translation, it may say Pergamum, uh, it's the same city. When Jesus addresses this church, remember that the church is called the bride of Christ, Right? And that's a weird thing for me as a guy when I when I first started hearing like we're the bride of Christ and we would sing songs about that that was just very strange for me. So man I can relate to you if you're like that's kind of a weird thing but just think of it as not so much like you're a girl but think of it as an intimate close relationship that God wants to have with us. And in the middle of that relationship just imagine husbands if you told your wife, hey, you know what, let's just compromise. And, and I want you to think about how she would respond if you said, you know what, I just, you know, I really want to be married to you 99% of the time. But just there's this 1%. And the 1% of the time, I, I really don't. So what I've decided is one, 99%, that's pretty good, right? Well, how about 364? 364 days out of the year, I'll be married to you. You know, I'll be faithful to you, but just one day out of the year, out of the 365, just let me do what I want to do and be with whomever I want to be with. Can you imagine how that goes over, right? In the relationship that we have with God, when God desires our our whole heart and he desires our whole worship, compromise is is not a, a good thing. So this morning when we consider the message to the churches in the book of Revelation, remember that... Um, four ways that we could learn from these seven churches that we have in Revelation 2 and 3, that when Jesus speaks to these churches, they were real literal churches at the time that John received this revelation in the first century. We also realize that these seven churches um, were were a part of Asia Minor, really an area of Turkey. Um, My iPad is stuck. If we can go there. Perfect. Thank you. When when we consider these churches, um, there was a circuit there. The Isle of Patmos is where John is writing from. Uh, Jesus gives this revelation to him there. John's being persecuted, so he is on this island. And and he's given this message to these seven churches here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And if you notice, going from Ephesus to Smyrna uh, in a a circular motion, he now addresses the church of Pergamum, or the church of Pergamus. And when he addresses these churches, these churches also show there's characteristics about each of these churches that can be true of our church. There's characteristics of these churches that can be true of an era of church history. And there's parts of what Jesus addresses in these churches that is true of me at times in my life. Sometimes I might be more like the church of Philadelphia. Sometimes I might be more like the church of of Pergamos. But when Jesus addresses these churches, um, he tells them that they can repent. And I want to let you know that the word repent is actually a word that that should bring hope. Um, the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia are not told to repent. There's no, there's no correction given to those churches, just encouragement. But to the other churches, there's this word repent. And the word repent is actually a word that means that A change of mind, a change of action, and a change of will. And this morning, I want to let you know that when Jesus tells us to repent, when he tells the church to repent, it should bring hope because it means that it is not too late. And I'll tell you that sometimes the way that we're challenged is that we feel like it's too late. It's too late for a turnaround. And I'm not just talking about immorality. Remember that there are three areas that Jesus addresses when he says to repent. Repent. One of them is immorality. Just evil actions, doing things that are sinful, not pleasing to God. Uh, another one is idolatry. They start to worship things, and they start to worship um, comfort or riches or pleasure above God. But let me tell you a third area where he says to repent, and it's in the area of intimacy. That's a deficient relationship with Jesus. And I'll tell you that there are times that we could drift that our love can grow cold, that we can become lukewarm. Jesus wants us to repent of those things. And remember, it brings hope, not despair. So when he tells them to repent, sometimes it's idolatry. There's bad doctrine, bad theology, bad worship. They're worshiping pleasure or comfort or power or pride or even sometimes good things elevated above God. There's immorality, evil actions, or there's intimacy, and relationship so today as we consider this church specifically the church of pergamos i want you to read with me what it says in revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12 it says and to the angel of the church in pergamos write: these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword i know your works and where you dwell where satan's throne is And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This morning, when we consider this message when we look at this church of Pergamos, um, Pergamos was the political capital of, uh, I'm trying to get to that third slide here, there we go, perfect. The political capital of the Roman, Roman province of that part of Asia for more than 300 years. So this place was a, a cultural Mecca. And I want you to think, what are some cultural Meccas today? Um... Style. We look at our world today, Paris, right? Why is it that they get to decide what is cool? <laughs> so they they have these styles, and then they come to the United States. So it's, it's in Europe first, and then it comes to the United States. Um, New York, right? New York is a cultural mecca. Los Angeles, a cultural mecca. But Santa Cruz is also a cultural mecca. You know, it amazed me when I first moved here, when I, I realized that... Um, the stickers and the hats and the shirts, like I, I have a, a Santa Cruz hat. Um, you think about the hats, and there are very few hats for just places. Like, I don't go to Modesto and everyone has shirts that just say Modesto. You know, we're not gonna go to the men's conference and like people are wearing hats that say Modesto. They have jackets that say Modesto, bumper stickers that say Modesto. There, there's a culture to it. There's art, you know, there's music, there's a style, there's a vibe. Um, Austin, Texas, another city culturally just has a vibe to it. Uh, Portland, Oregon. There's certain cultural places like that. And and Pergamos was a cultural mecca. It was a place that the culture of Pergamos started to pervade other areas of Asia Minor. This is a place that uh, was very, um, it was very educational. They had a library that was one of the largest libraries in the whole world at the time. A library that had 200,000 volumes. Libraries back then, um, there, were, there was not the Dewey Decimal System. You know, you didn't, uh, there wasn't, they weren't printed on a printing press. There wasn't a computer that you sat at. Books were books that were written by scribes. The printing press had not yet been invented when the Church of Pergamus existed. So to have 2000 handwritten volumes, this was like, um, an intellectual Mecca. So a cultural Mecca, an intellectual Mecca, a place that you really had to be up on your reading and your education in order to feel like you kind of belonged in Pergamus. Because if you didn't, you were kind of looked at as like a country, you know, like a hillbilly in a sense, like if you, you couldn't associate with their higher level of learning, um, when we, we consider um, medication, uh, the medical field, to be a doctor, you know that the symbol is that that like kind of a cross. There's a serpent that's on it. It, it comes right here from Pergamos. Um, it was a very religious place as well. In fact, one of the gods, one of the deities was a, a deity known as Asclepios. Asclepios was represented by the serpent and he was the god of healing and knowledge. So... I just want you to think about what this place was like that the church existed in called Pergamos. And this morning I want you to think about the place where we live and the place where we dwell and realize that there are challenges in every place where we live and where we minister. But this church in particular was so difficult that Jesus himself calls it the place where Satan's throne is. Now, Everybody thinks their city is hard. And I understand that some cities are more difficult than other cities. There are cities in it that if you're a Christian that you would be killed for your faith. But every city is difficult. But this city is something that Jesus says that Satan's throne dwells there. We're going to look a little bit later at, at why he says that. Now remember, whenever Jesus says to repent, um, it brings hope. And, and it's something that, that teaches us that when he says repent, there's a place to change. But before he tells them to change, he reveals who he himself is to them. And I want you to look at what it says with me in verse 12. Um, you know, if you guys could control the slides, for some reason, mine is so delayed that by the time I change it, it's like those old computers where you click it, and then you click it three times, and then it goes three pages over. If we, you could get to the slide, where the Roman numeral one is on there, and it says revelation of Jesus. Um, in verse 12, it says, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, whenever Jesus addresses these seven churches, he, um, he reveals an aspect or a part of himself that either they have neglected or they need to hear. In Revelation chapter 1, there's the description when John sees Jesus of what he's like. And then to each of these churches, he reveals himself as a part of that description. And to the church in Pergamos, he reveals himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember when John turned in Revelation 1 to see Jesus, where was that sword protruding from? Anyone remember? From the mouth of Jesus. Jesus. And remember I brought out the big Braveheart sword to describe the type of sword uh, that it is. It's not like a a small sword. It's not like a dagger. This is the word that is used here. It's a sword that because of its length and its breadth, a swath of that sword causes destruction in a a wide radius. The word of God coming out of Jesus' mouth to the church of Pergamos, he wants them to remember that the word of God is something that they should be serious about. And it's something that we should be serious about. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to realize that there are curses associated with adding or taking away from Jesus' word. If we add to it or we take away from it, that there's some curses that Jesus says will be upon that person that does that. Now, how important is God's word to God? Remember that the name of God going all the way back to the Old Testament, is Yahweh. Um, when they would write it, they would write it Y-H-W-H. They would take out the nouns, and it was something that was so holy that it wouldn't even be pronounced. When they speak of God, they would be silent. And when they would write, they wouldn't write the whole name of God because they felt like God's name was so holy and to be revered that even to write it all the way out would be, would be like, we're not worthy to do that. His name was so holy that when the scribes would um, write the the word "God" or Yahweh," they would stop, they would pause, they would be silent, they would bow their head, they would pray they would they would do something that would indicate the unworthiness of themselves and the holiness of God, and yet, even though god's name is so holy, it says in psalm one thirty eight two that God has magnified his word even above his name. Remember that Jesus is the word made flesh, the logos. So when Jesus reveals himself in this way to the church of Pergamos, it's because this is the aspect of Jesus that they have neglected and the aspect of Jesus that they need right now. They've neglected the word of God and what they need right now is the word of God. What they need is to turn back to a faithfulness of God's word. So Jesus goes into this part in verse 13. um, Roman numeral two, this is affirmation. Remember to each of the churches, um, there there were two churches that didn't receive any affirmation, but to these churches, he gives affirmation to most of them. And in verse 13, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who is killed among you where Satan dwells? Now, again, maybe you think where you are is hard. And I'm not saying that it's not. Uh, maybe your situation is a difficult situation. God has you in a very difficult relationship. Maybe He has you in a difficult family. Um, God might have placed you in a very difficult job. Every day going to work is hard. Every day there's a Uh, A demand that's there. Every day there's some coworkers that you have to deal with. Every day there's some employees that you have to deal with. A boss that you have to deal with. Stressful environment. I I remember one time in a a job that I was working, it was was so stressful. Um, This boss had gotten so many people to quit because she was just so harsh. And it was something that every time I'd go to work, I would just pray, Jesus, help me to represent you well. Help me just to work as unto you because I can't work as unto my boss. God may have you in a very difficult school situation, whether it would be just the difficulty of school or, or maybe you're just hearing things from professors that are just telling you things that are antithetical to what you believe. Maybe it's just the pressure that is there or the, the peer pressure. And you, he might even have you in a very difficult ministry and you just feel like, it's so hard to be faithful right where you are because you're not seeing the fruit. You're, you're, not, you're not seeing those come alongside. I just got a chance to talk to a friend uh, earlier last week. And, and one thing that he asked is, Matt, could you just pray for someone? Just someone to come alongside of me in ministry. Just someone that, that I could look to and that person is going to be there. Just the moral support. I want you to know that the Christians in Pergamus lived in a very difficult place. Um, that Jesus called the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. You know, the Bay Area is uh, the, one of the least churched areas in the country. There was a survey uh, last year that, w- that came out, I don't know if you saw it, where it came to least biblical cities. And what they meant by least biblical cities is a biblical mindset. When they gave surveys and they they just tested um, how biblical is your thinking. Number one, do you know the Bible? Number two, does it does it kind of help in your decision making process? And, and we live in um, the fifth most unbiblical city, okay, or area, just in, in the whole United States as far as mindset, mentality, and thinking. Um, I. One of the pastors in uh, in Santa Cruz was saying that he said, "When I got here and I was planting seeds, I felt like I was sowing seeds in fields of iron that that 's kind of what it felt like. But know this, however difficult it is that you are facing, whatever situation you're in, um, I think that the Christians in Pergamus had it worse. Personally, I just look at the Christians in pergamus and and Jesus himself says it's where satan thrown satan 's throne." is now one of the reasons why it could have been called satan's throne is because they had this incredible temple to zeus incredible people from all around the world would come to it and they would worship at this temple to zeus there were also uh, many different gods that they would worship again asclepios um the god of healing it was known as a healing center there were doctors but there were they would mix medicine you know real you know uh, physical medication with also some mysticism in the temple to Asclepius, there were snakes there. You heard of snake charmers? Well, they would lay down, uh, they, would, they would go into this temple, and they would just lay down there, and these, these snakes were non-venomous snakes, but they would allow the snakes to crawl over them. And what that would do is that would kind of bring some kind of healing from the god Asclepius. So, you know, it, maybe that's why it was considered Satan's throne. Maybe it was just their allegiance to, um, to the Roman emperor and how they... Uh, again, Caesar worship was, was very rampant there. Regardless of why it was called Satan's throne, you know, where they live was difficult. And, and one of the questions is, how do you remain faithful to Jesus when you're in a difficult place? How do you remain faithful to Jesus when you're in a hard situation and in a difficult environment? A difficult place. Maybe you feel kind of isolated. Maybe you feel kind of alone. Jesus said this in their affirmation, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even when Antipas was killed for his witness. Now Antipas was a a bishop or a pastor in Pergamos. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, there are very few writings outside of the Bible about this guy named Antipas and this is the only place where he's mentioned in the Bible. So we don't know his, his background I just think of him as this obscure, relatively unknown pastor in a very difficult place. And he was so faithful that he gave his life for his witness. The word that we have here is the word um, martyr. But, but initially this word martyr was the word martus. And the word martis just meant to be a witness. It wasn't until persecution came that we started associating it with someone that died for their faith. So Antipas was a faithful witness. And eventually because of his faithful witness he was killed. You know I think other pastors in, in other countries they experience this. They experience the hostility of, of the possibility of martyrdom because they preach the gospel. And, and it's hit our soil. Recently, hasn't it? There have been pastors that have been killed and church members that have been killed just by fanatics. It's hit the news a little bit here, but in other countries, like I, I shared last week, you know, it, it's commonplace and it's happening more and more. And Antipas was faithful even though he died for his faith. Now, in this environment, They held fast to the name of Jesus. In this hostile place, they held fast to the name above all names. Notice Jesus said, you hold fast to my name. This was not God generic, but this was Jesus Christ. God generic is acceptable in just about any situation. There may be some that would even be offended by just God generic, but most of the time... The president can end his address by saying, God bless America. We could say um, God in public. We could say God bless you when someone sneezes. Uh, People can talk about their God and that's okay. But when you get very specific and you start talking about Jesus Christ, realize that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's, It's the name, it's the person of Jesus Christ. And when you get very specific about Jesus Christ, tension kind of rises a little bit. People get a little bit more uneasy. See, in this place that was very hostile, one of the ways that they remained faithful is they were faithful to hold fast to the name of Jesus. And notice Jesus says about them, he said, and you did not deny my faith. He didn't just say, you you did not deny faith. You did not deny my faith. What does that mean, my faith? 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In Jude, verse 3, it says, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In the same way that Jesus' name is not a generic name, faith in Jesus is not a generic faith. There is a generic faith that, again, it's okay. People will say, keep the faith. What does that mean? It means root for the Golden State Warriors. You know, that's, a, that's keep the faith. Uh, keep the faith could be in whatever the thing is that you're saying, hey, I just don't want to give up in, in this thing that I'm thinking. Keep the faith. This is not a generic faith. The thing that kept them faithful in the midst of this is Jesus said, you did not deny my faith. Then we get to this exhortation. In the exhortation in verses 14 through 16, Jesus gives them some things that need to be corrected. He said, but I have a few things against you. So they're doing great. A hard place. Jesus says, I know you're in a hard place. You've held fast to my name. You have not denied my faith. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So Jesus says, hey, you know what? I have a few things against you. You have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, we're not going to go in depth um, into the doctrine of Balaam. His story can be found in Numbers 22 through 25, and also Numbers chapter 31. But I'm going to give you a, a summary. There was a, um, a conflict between God's people, the Israelites, and the Midianites. And the Midianites had come to attack the Israelites, the king of the Midianites was a, a man named Balak, and Balak was the king of Midian, who was a, again a rival people group to the Israelites. He went to Balaam, who was known as a prophet, and he said, Balaam, I know that you uh, give prophecies and your prophecies seem to come true. What I want you to do is I will give you money, I'll give you treasures, if you would put a curse on Israel. And Balaam says, I, I can't do that. I can, only, I can only speak what God tells me to speak. Otherwise, it won't work, you know. And, and he says, well, here, just, just try. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll try. And then instead of cursing Israel, do you know what Balaam does? He blesses. He gives them an incredible blessing. And so Balak asks him again, hey, I want you to try. Do it again. You know, I'll give you money. We'll pay you. And, and Balaam, you know, he goes along with it and he does it again. He goes on three times, even though he should have never gone with Balak in the first place, he, he, he goes with them, and then he gives these blessings instead of curses. But then the narrative goes silent for a while, and what we find by the time we get to Numbers 31 and later is that Balaam realizes that he cannot curse God's people. So he tells Balak, I can't curse God's people, but let me tell you what you can do. To weaken them and to defeat them. Bring your most beautiful women. Bring them in. And have them seduce the men of Israel. With sexual immorality. And then introduce them to false gods. Idol worship. And once they do that. They will be weakened. And they can be defeated. And one of the things that I see is that the doctrine of Balaam. First of all. In, in the correction, there's there's bad doctrine, bad worship. The second thing is that there's sexual immorality. And again, when Jesus corrects the churches in the, the book of Revelation, which are the things that he corrects even amongst us today, it's bad doctrine, theology, worship, the way that we think. It's immorality, it's idolatry. And again, it's intimacy with God. It's, it's lack of relationship. Know this. One of the lessons that we can take from the church of Pergamos is that persecution can never defeat us. Wherever around the world where there is persecution of the church, the Christian church thrives. Wherever there is persecution of Christians, faith becomes vibrant because people make a stand and they decide, am I really gonna follow Jesus or am I just gonna follow the ways of the world? So persecution can never defeat us. But the way to weaken is to do so from within. And one of the lessons we could learn is that what Balaam showed Balak is this. You're not going to defeat them because their God is strong. But if they begin to compromise in their faith, they begin to give in, they begin to uh, mix when it comes to worship, they begin to practice some of the things in the area when they become immoral, that's how you can weaken them. The marriage of the church and the world, and by world, I mean the word cosmos, which means the world system. The marriage of the church and the world is a, it's a very, very dangerous proposition. There's a word that, um, that we use, you know, in modern day language, uh, syncretism, which is the reconciliation or fusion of differing systems of belief. It, it, it's like uh, my friend uh, Craig Linquist. He was on staff uh, with me at Calvary Chapel San Jose, but uh, he is now um, he's now in, in Africa. He's in Uganda, and he talks about how with the Christians there, one of the difficulties is you have Christianity, but you also have a layer of paganism and idol worship and false gods, so that there's a mixture. There's Christians that say yes, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe in this voodoo or this witch doctor or this other god and he said one of the the challenges is is separating um the mixture of those things in doctrine and in theology but you know that you don't have to go to another country to see that right you see that right here where we dwell you see that right here in our neighborhood spiritual but not religious and my spirituality is kind of like a an eclectic spirituality where I'm taking, I love these aspects of Buddhism where there's, there's meditation. I love these aspects of, of uh, you know, maybe being a Hindu and, and maybe um, coming to this place where my good kind of outweighs my bad and I have a second chance. And I, I love Jesus. I like some things about Jesus. And so what you see, even in our own culture, is this, this mixture of stuff. In the Philippines, that word is holo-holo. hollow holo is this drink that if you're not Filipino, it's going to sound gross. But I'll tell you, that if, you if you grow up with it, you're just going to love it. it it's like shaved ice um, mixed with like this evaporated milk. And then they put these like yams and sweet beans in it. And they put this purple stuff called ubi. And they, they, just, they just mix all of this stuff together. Some fruits. And they, yeah, what do you want to put in? Oh, I don't know. It, there's, not a, there's not a specific hollow hollow mix. It's like whatever you want to eat whatever's flavorful for you throw it in mix it up if you like it enjoy it and what people do with their spirituality is that you know i don't like this i don't like the aspect of truth because that aspect of truth it's offensive to me and it causes me to change my lifestyle and it means that i don't call the shots i like jesus saying love your neighbor I, I, i want i want that part of jesus Oh, but when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, pretty narrow-minded in today's world. That's kind of archaic in our thinking. We need to add some other tolerance type of stuff. And we have to be careful that there can be an over-tolerance. And the word tolerance has been hijacked because it's the same lexicon, the same word as it has been in the past, but it's a a different dictionary. It's a different um, understanding of what that word means. We should be absolutely tolerant of everyone as far as love is concerned. We should never try to force people not to say things and, and say, you must worship God in this way or we will kill you. Or I'll beat you up. Or I'll persecute you. That—that's No, we need to be tolerant. But within the church that Jesus is addressing of Pergamus. He's saying, let me tell you what I have against you. There are some in your church that hold to these teachings. And you're not doing anything about it. And by doing anything about it, you're not addressing those things. Now, when we address these things, Christians, please listen to me. We need to be loving and we need to be gentle. Because we realize that some people don't understand the gospel And if we come across judgmental and harsh, what that will teach them about Jesus is that it's a set of rules and that Christians are very judgmental and unforgiving. And therefore, if you have a different belief, don't go to church. If you have a different belief, don't talk to Christians. They will shout you down. They will shut you up. They will show you that they are right. And they sound like angry talk show hosts. That's not the Jesus that we're to be. But if there is someone that is teaching false doctrine and they're leading other people astray, if I don't address that, Jesus says, now I have a problem with you and I will come quickly and I have a sword that is protruding out of my mouth and I will deal with it. I will deal with it with my word. It's very serious stuff for us as Christians. Not to just allow someone to, to go on in their way of thinking, but engage them. Now, again, there's a difference between those in the church. Jesus is addressing not the city of Pergamos right here. Okay, he's not, this is not an open letter, open letter to the city of Pergamos. You know what this is an open letter to? This is an open letter to the church of Pergamos and to the other churches. And this is to us. And so to us, when I speak with someone that is a Christian, They already have a relationship with Christ, they want to worship Christ, and they have some questions. I'm speaking from a different starting point than I'm speaking to someone that's a skeptic or doesn't know the Lord. And if we don't understand that, we will talk to non-Christians, non-followers of Christ, seekers as though they're Christians, and they think, I have to get my life in order and all together before I ever come to that place. Does that make sense? And it's what turns a lot of people off from Christianity. But when Jesus addresses the church, he's saying, now, this is what I have against you. You let this go on in the church. There are some that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Believe me, to Jesus, doctrine, theology, belief is absolutely important. Sometimes we think, I've heard people say, well, you know what, I... I just don't want doctrine. I just want like some practical steps. Give me four steps to how to have a happy life. You know, give me three steps to save my marriage, two steps to raising children, one, you know, all these different things. But theology, doctrine, if we don't understand theology and doctrine, our belief, it, it affects our identity and our relationship with Christ. And our belief starts to affect our actions. So belief is all important. It, it is incredibly crucial. It, it goes along with action. Now, the church of Pergamos, there are some Bible teachers that believe that it represents the institutionalized church. Do you remember, um, if you look back at church history, there was an emperor. The emperor was Constantine. And Constantine looked at the Roman Empire as it started to get divided right around 300 AD. And as it started to splinter and get divided, Constantine, um, according to extra biblical writings he looked up in the sky he saw a cross and and basically was told that that symbol will, will be the symbol that that kind of rules the world so according to extra biblical writings constantine became a christian but let me tell you what he said after he became a christian he said all of the roman empire now will become christians and every roman citizen will be baptized and what he started to do is he started to force religion and he started to force Christianity onto people's lives, even though there may or may not have been a sincere faith that was there. If you go to Israel, one of the, um, one of the places that you'll go to in Bet-Shan is a, an ancient bathhouse. Now it was a crazy thing because in the bathhouse what they would do is that they would take public baths, the men would go and they would get naked and they would have these baths and then there were prostitutes there and they would have sex with these prostitutes in these bathhouses and then if you go to the other side of the bathhouse, there's a symbol of a cross on the other side and on the other side is a baptismal. You could go and you could go to the bathhouse and be with a prostitute on the same day and get baptized. And let me explain, in this mixing of things, there's a danger when there's a politicized Christianity. Now, I know I'm going to step on every landmine right now, <laughs> and, and every person will have different views on this and get angry at me, and that, that's okay. It, it is so important that we don't mix up the gospel with voting. We should vote. We should pray for our our leaders. We should look for leaders that line up with godly values. But that does not equate to the gospel. And sometimes we mix it. And it's kind of like if we get enough power in there, if we get enough power in there, then we could force things. We could force the issues. Now, again, I am for life in all of its stages. And if you have had an abortion, I, I, you know, Jesus loves you. I want you to know that. There's no condemnation when we come to Christ. But I also know that legislation, like I'm hoping, I'm praying for a pro-life president in Supreme Court as we're looking for another justice that would come into that place. But if I talk to someone that has a different political ideology than I do, I can't judge whether or not They have faith in Christ based on an ideology. There may be some teaching that needs to happen. I believe there may be some teaching, some discussion, some conversation, some looking to scripture that needs to take place. But so many times what Christians do is they equate a political position with Christianity. And let me tell you what else we could do is we could mistake morality for Christianity god wants us to be moral he wants us to follow his laws and his rules and there's reasons for it but i am not saved by my morality and i am not unsaved because of one immoral act i'm saved based on the grace of god because jesus christ died for my sins and that's what i put my trust in yes i need to repent Yes, I need to change my lifestyle when it comes into opposition with what God's word says. I should do that. But what blows me away is I know some very moral people that are not Christians. You know, I met one guy over at UC Santa Cruz. He blew me away. Talking to him, he he is morally on on almost every plane the same as I am. Almost every plane... Morality—he's he, for all of those things and against all of those things, but this guy wasn't a Christian, and and he's like, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a an agnostic. I don't believe in in Jesus, but but you know, morality, like I'm okay. That person is just as lost and as separated from God as someone that is struggling with a, a sinful lifestyle and feels condemned, and they won't. Come to church. We need to be careful that, of of sizing people up just based on what they look like on the outside. Jesus wants the heart. He wants that worship in which there's not an idolatry of self, not an idolatry of comfort, not an idolatry of convenience. There's not an idolatry of pleasure, not an idolatry of power. But we worship Jesus. I, I hope that's clear. I, I pray that it is. If you have questions, talk to me. Don't leave. Angry. Don't like. Okay. I I think that there's too much of that that happens in the body of Christ, where people just don't talk. I I love, absolutely love, having conversations with unbelievers. I love it when they are in opposition to what I believe, but they realize I'm not shouting them down, but I'm appealing to them. As that's what it says. Remember what it says in First Peter that we're to give an answer to everyone who asks with with gentleness with this reverence, this respect that we should have for others. Christians, let us lead the way in that. Let us lead the way of a civil discussion. They may not be civil. They might be mean, and they might call you names, and they might shout you down, but don't respond kind for kind. Show them the love of Christ, and show them that respect, and show them that love, and I know that it's hard. I know that there are times that my blood could start to boil because I'm angry. I know that there are times when my heart is beating because I'm like, uh, I disagree with you with every fiber of my being. I don't want to yell, but I'm not going to yell. Jesus, help me to be gentle with them. Jesus, who on the cross was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, there are a lot of people that don't know. So I, I would expect... I don't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian, and we shouldn't either. To the church of Pergamos, what Jesus had against them is that they allowed immorality. Sexual immorality came into the church, and they did nothing about it. Now, understand, when it comes to sexual immorality, there is one relationship where God blesses and God's hand of, of joy and grace and love and um, approval is upon that relationship sexually and it's when a man and a woman become united in marriage that's it that's it not pornography because it's not real it's just this screen not you know friends with benefits it's just a, a casual thing not we really love each other and we plan to get married in 10 years. Not um, financially, it's more feasible for us to live together and just live as a married couple. Not those things. And and please, if that is your situation, I'm going to tell you the why. It's because true agape love of sacrifice, it has to cost you something. It can't be, I mean... Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friend. Why does God fill human beings in their teen years and 20s with hormones? Why does he fill them with just, uh, you know, attractiveness and and eyes that see? And, And why has he wired us as men to see those things and then say, no, only in marriage and only with this person? Because it's where love is shown. It's where you deny yourself And you say, I love you so much that I am willing to deny myself for you because I love you and I'm showing that I'm putting my desires down and I'm putting my will down to show you that you mean that much to me. You are that precious to me. And God, you are that precious to me. And I want to please you that much. That's the why. It's not that, hey, if I do this, I'll go to heaven. If I don't do this, I'm not going to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying so in this sexual immorality within the church, they held fast to Jesus's name, right, and they also, they were, they were faithful to the, to Jesus's faith, but Jesus says, I have this against you, you allow these things to continue, the word repent to them is a word of hope, it is not too late, no matter how far down the trail you have gone, if you're, feeling like your face is red and because you're nervous because this applies to you no this doesn't just apply to you it applies to me it applies to the people that are sitting on your left and right and in front and behind you because all of us struggle we, we live in a sexually pervasive culture in which it's accessible and it's acceptable it's in every entertainment, it's in every song. Uh, when the explicit lyric label started coming on to CDs when I was in high school, and those were like the really bad songs with explicit lyrics. Now on Spotify, I'm looking for a playlist that doesn't have explicit lyrics. It's the norm. It is normative now. And even in a normative culture like Pergamus, Jesus says, don't live that way. Don't live like them live in a way that, that they see that you're different other than. They see that, that there's something that is authentic about you. And again, um, they introduced these women um, that, that came to seduce the men there. It says that they introduced them to their idols. I'll, I'll tell you that we could easily be introduced to idols. Now, when it comes to a secular culture, there are some aspects of the secular culture that we could receive. I, I could go out and hike in the mountains or swim in the ocean and enjoy it just as much as the next person that doesn't know the Lord. I, I think more because I'm, I'm glorifying God in his creation. I think I'm enjoying it more because I know the creator. But it's like, hey, they're doing that and I'm not going to separate from those. Those are things that are just just kind of neutral things. You know, there's some neutral things in our world. But then there are some things that we need to reject outright. And if the standard of sexual immorality has changed so much from God's standard, we're not, God, God doesn't say, you know what? Take the temperature of the culture that you're in and just make sure you fit in right with that temperature. God's not called us to be thermometers. He's called us to be thermostats. We're to change the temperature. We're to change the environment of a room by how we live. Not by preaching down at them, but just by living it. Believe me, just by living it, people will see it. And when people see it and they know that you love them and it's authentic, they're going to want to know why. Be ready to give them a reason. And there are some things in culture that we can redeem. Yeah, there, there are some things that maybe, like Easter, yeah, it comes from the word Ishtar and uh, this goddess of fertility and all of those things. But we look at Easter, even though like like Pastor Bill was saying, like the Passover is later this year. We we celebrated Easter a few weeks ago. But you know what we do as Christians is we look at the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's what our focus is on, the resurrected risen Savior. You know, I... I know that there are people that say hey don't have christmas trees because those are pagan i don't look at it as pagan you know what i look at it i look at it as there's a tree in my house that smells good and uh it makes us have these warm feelings and memories and we always talk about the tree that jesus hung on for our sins and the decorations and one of the decorations being the nail that we hang on the tree last that represents why we celebrate christmas in the first place so that's something that has been redeemed in our family for us but if there's something explicit in scripture, Jesus says, don't do that. I can't redeem. I can't say, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a, a Deanna's going to be my wife and I'm going to have some concubines. You know, I'm going to have uh, those on the side or This this kind of like this cultural thing, you know, and, and that's okay in our culture. No, reject. You reject those things. So verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Nicolaitans. They were those that said the leaders of the church, the clergy, uh, uh, just the word, Nicolaitans, means to rule over the people. To rule over the people. Pastor should be servant. The word minister means servant. I'm serving you by teaching the word of God. We serve the body of Christ. Um, There is a an order that God places within the church were to submit to the authorities that are over us. But the Nicolaitans were like those cults that would say, hey, this is what you can do and this is what you cannot do. This is who you can marry. This is who you cannot marry. And, and there was this air of superiority about them. And we need to make sure that there is never a movement, a ministry, a church, a pastor, a denomination, a priest, a pope that is above the word of God. If we as Regeneration or as Calvary Chapel ever uh, uh, exalt our church above the word of God and we start doing things against God's word, but God's word says this, leave and go with God's word because God's word is important to God. Verse 16, repent or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, it is not too late to turn around. And I close with this, the motivation of action in verse 17. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the message is to the pastor, to the church. But also, if you could feel this, this earlobe, you have an ear, this is to you. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is to the messenger of the church, it's to the church, but it's to you and me as individuals also. And if we would hear this, he says, to him... Who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What? <laughs> like what? Like what? <laughs> you read that, like if I just said, Hey, go go with that. Like you know, but what 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 does that mean? Hidden manna? Remember that manna was what God provided for the Israelites as they went through the wilderness, but then they were to take some of that manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. This hidden manna, it speaks of God's provision and also God's closeness. Provision and closeness. Jesus says, "If you're faithful, you hold fast to my name. You take care of these things. I'm going to provide for you. I'm close with you." A white stone. Now, uh, the white stone. You know, as reading again church history, the the Romans had something called a tesserae. The tesserae were were stones, and and they used them for different things. Sometimes a black stone would represent judgment and a white stone would represent acquittal. And there were different type of tesserae. There was also the tesserae uh, convivales. I'm probably pronouncing it more like Spanish. <laughs> and the tesserae hospitales. Uh, one was a stone of admittance. Come to a party and you have that white stone and your name is written on it. Come on in. You've been invited. Another was a stone of alliance and friendship. So that if we are friends and we we're in an alliance, we both have that same stone. Jesus says, "I'll give you that white stone," and then the last thing—this is my favorite—and I will give you. It says, um, "And on the new stone, a secret name." I loved as a kid. I love secret names, codes. You know, secret names—a secret name which no one knows except him who receives it. This is reserved for a loved one. You know, I have these weird nicknames for my kids. Um, Josiah, oh boy, Joe, boy, Siah. It's like, we call him oh boy. That's just like a nickname. Uh, for my daughter, Rebecca, when she was little, I called her Bacosa, and then I called her Koser. It means nothing except to her. It means, but to her, it's a, a term of, and you have, and, and I guarantee you, boyfriends and girlfriends, you have some names you call each other, not in public, right? It's this private name that only that person knows, because if we knew, we'd make fun of you. So you just keep it to yourselves, but it's a real intimate, close, personal thing. To to us, God changes us from Jacob to Israel, from reed that is blowing in the wind to rock, from Simon to Peter, um, from Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob meaning deceiver, Israel governed by God from Simon to Peter. And so as we close, what shapes you? Your culture or Christ? Now we're shaped by part of our culture. Don't get me wrong. How we were raised, where we were brought up, where we live, that, that shapes a part of us. But when we become regenerated, when we become born again, when the Holy Spirit fills us, we should now live differently in the areas where we should live differently. And people should be able to see that within us. Remember, actions always flow from belief. Theology and doctrine are important. And to Jesus, relationship is absolutely vital. Casting crowns have a song, Slow Fade. It says, it's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I would pray, Lord, that as we look at the letter to the church of Pergamos, that we would take that as a letter to us as well. Father, um, first of all, I just want to pray for your cleansing in my own heart. Lord, I don't want to be in a place of judgmentalism and self-righteousness because Jesus, when I compare myself to you, I realize that I do fall short. Lord Jesus, I I realize that there are times when the idolatry of self being preoccupied with how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I want, my comfort, my pleasure, my convenience... Lord, sometimes those things can subtly come into my life. Lord, sometimes that subtlety is not something where I, I just make a decision not to worship you, but Lord, those, those things, they start to compete with my love and my focus and my attention. And Lord, I would pray that as a representative for us because I, I believe that we go through common things. So Lord, right now, today, there are things that are competing for the love of our hearts. There are things that um, are enticing, seducing, tempting us just to mix and compromise. And Lord, like the Church of Pergamos, we don't want to deny your, your name. We don't want to deny your faith. But Lord, sometimes we could just let things in. Lord, things that maybe when we first started following you that, that we just turned away from, that have slowly crept back into a comfortable, convenient life. Jesus, I pray that you would purify your church today. Lord, may it begin with each one of us individually. Purify me. Purify my brothers and sisters. Remind us that when you tell us to repent, Jesus, that that is your invitation. It's not too late that we could change, we could turn around. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us Mindsets and thoughts, Lord, that that we don't even know, are are really antithetical to the gospel. Legalism that has creeped in, Lord, maybe maybe just a looseness with morals, allowing things in for entertainment that that would make you sick, that grieve your heart. Father, I pray today that we would overcome these things. Lord, may we receive a white stone, admittance. May we receive hidden manna, your provision, your closeness, that we would share a meal with you. Jesus, I pray that we would realize that you have a name that you give specifically to us. Because Lord, for each one of us, you know us by name. Lord, remind us that we Um, that you know, you know us, you know where we are, you know what we're going through. So as we sing to you and as we worship, Lord, we give you our hearts. As we sing to the Lord, open up your heart to him, ask him to search you, ask him to draw near to you. Because we don't follow rules and regulations just for the sake of following rules and regulations. We, we want to follow Jesus and whatever pleases him and whatever he knows is best for us.